It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jared Diamond says there's a way to fix today's political crises, and it doesn't necessarily start at Capitol Hill. By examining ourselves and how we've tackled personal crises, we may be able to find answers to national problems. All of us have encountered personal crises in our lives, situations that force us to realize that our previous coping methods are no longer working and that we gotta figure out something new. Today, he explains how the advice a therapist gives for a personal problem applies to a country in crisis. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Many of us have experienced a crisis, divorce, the death of a loved one, a serious health problem, financial troubles. How did you solve your crisis? Jared Diamond says about a dozen predictors help therapists understand if a patient will succeed in dealing with their crisis. Countries are similar. When they have a problem, the same factors determine whether they'll be able to tackle it. Jared Diamond's latest book, Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis, examines this close link between personal problems and national crises. He also looks back on history to see how countries with similar crises handled them differently. The book, which was released today, looks at seven countries, including the U.S. The crises facing America today, says Diamond, include political polarization, socioeconomic inequality, and more. Here's Diamond. Today I wanted to talk about a project in comparative history applied to national political crises. By comparative history, I mean not studying just one country at a time, but comparing the histories of different countries. Most historical studies are single case studies. Those have their advantages, but they also have a disadvantage summarized in a quip by a historian who said, um, if you study only one country, you'll end up studying understanding no country. And the reason for that statement is that by comparing many different countries, only then can you recognize the distinctive features of the country that you are particularly interested in. For example, there are tens of thousands of books devoted to the American Civil War. And those books almost never mention one of the most distinctive features of the American Civil War compared to other civil wars, which was at the end of the American Civil War, the winners did not kill the losers. In fact, the Union killed only one person on the losing side, the commandant of Andersonville um, concentration camp. Whereas at the end of the Finnish Civil War, the winners killed 20,000 of the losers. And at the end of the Spanish and Indonesian Civil Wars, the winners killed hundreds of thousands of the losers. Why was the United States unusual in respect to its civil war? That's a question that wouldn't even arise unless you compared the American Civil War with other civil wars. The comparative approach to history is the approach that I used in my books, Guns, Germs, and Steel, Collapse, Third Chimpanzee, The World Until Yesterday, Natural Experiments of History, and Why a Sex Fun. My current comparative book is on national political crises defined as a country encountering a major problem that the country's traditional coping methods cannot solve and whose solution instead requires 
new approaches for the country. Examples are the crisis that introduced the Meiji era in Japan when Commodore Perry with his fleet of steamships, American fleet, sailed into, in effect, Tokyo Harbor and demanded an end to Japan's centuries of isolation. Or the crisis of Chile on September 11, 1973, when President Allende, the democratically elected president, was overthrown, committed suicide, and a military dictatorship under Pinochet was inaugurated. Or the crisis in Britain, the slower crisis in Britain in the 1950s when Britain was losing its empire, losing its economic and political clout, and having to find a new role for itself in the world. And of course, there's the crisis in the in the United States today and in the world today. Naturally, every crisis is particular, but are there any generalizations that could help us deal with current and future crises? My perspective on national crises is derived from personal crises, something about which all of us have experience. All of us have encountered personal crises in our lives, situations that force us to realize that our previous coping methods are no longer working and that we got to figure out something new. Examples are relationship crises, the crisis produced by a divorce, one's partner walking out on you, the crisis produced by the death of a loved one, or a serious health problem in yourself or a loved one, or a career problem or a financial problem. Each such personal crisis you know is particular and unique to you in that situation, but nevertheless, there are generalizations. The generalizations I came to appreciate because my wife, Marie, is a clinical psychologist who did a specialty training in crisis therapy, which is not the usual long-term therapy dealing with deep-rooted problems, but instead is therapy to address an immediate crisis that the person has to deal with fast, such as relationship, job problem, death of a loved one, et cetera. In crisis therapy, um, each week, Marie and a fellow therapist would get together to discuss how the clients were dealing with their crises because that had to be figured out. In the worst cases, there were suicide attempts and successful suicides. So what could crisis therapists do to predict how a client was faring at finding a solution to the individual crisis? And as Marie would come home in the evening and talk to me about these general principles, and there are about a dozen predictors that she and her fellow therapists found helped understand whether a person would succeed in dealing with a personal crisis. All of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with these predictors. First of all, you have to acknowledge that there's a crisis, because if you don't acknowledge that there's a crisis, you can make no progress solving it. Secondly, you have to recognize your responsibility, recognize that you can and have to do something. You can't just blame others and assume the mantle of helpless victim. One has to do what's called building a fence. When there's a big crisis like one's spouse walking out on you, one's first reaction is likely to be a sense that everything has gone wrong in one's life, and that's overwhelming. If you feel that everything has gone wrong, you can't identify those specific things that need, you need changing. It's impossible to change all of yourself. So, a key element in the early stage of a crisis is to draw a fence, 
within the fence are that issue or those issues that need to be dealt with, and everything outside the fence is okay, so you no longer feel overwhelmed. All of you who have been through crises know that it's important to get help from friends. You know that it's important to have models of other people who've solved similar crises. You know that it's essential to develop realistic, honest self-appraisal, which sadly is often lacking in early stages of a crisis for us. You have to be patient because many crises, you're not going to be able to find a new way of dealing with the problem on your first attempt. You have to be patient and try different things till you find something that will succeed. It helps to have experience of previous crises that you've dealt with successfully that give you confidence that you master this crisis as well. That's why for teenagers and young adults, crises are so devastating because they don't have experience of previous major crises that they already got through and that give them confidence that they'll get through this one as well. So overall, Marie and her fellow ther uh, therapists recognized about a dozen factors that help understand the outcomes of personal crises. As Marie talked about these predictive factors um, to me over dinner, it occurred to me, I think that I can identify a dozen factors or hypotheses for a dozen factors affecting the outcomes of national crises, including factors suggested by the factors affecting outcomes of personal crises. Now, you may immediately object, that's, that's impossible, that's nonsense. We know that Nations are not individuals. Yes, of course, nations are not identical to individuals. Um, nevertheless, there are similarities and there are differences. There are some factors affecting the outcome of personal crises which map closely on predictors for outcomes of national crises. For us as individuals, it makes a big difference whether you get help from friends and whether you can turn to other people as models for how to solve the crisis. And similarly, nations may get help from their allies and may look to how other models of how other nations have solved similar problems. In other cases, the outcome predictor for an individual crisis certainly doesn't apply to a national crisis, but may serve as a metaphor, helping you think of a predictor for a national crisis. For example, for individuals, an important consideration is what psychologists call ego strength, which is similar to but broader than self-confidence. Nations do not have individual ego strength, but nations have something suggested by individual ego strength, and that's national identity. Or freedom of choice, individuals have more or less freedom of choice depending upon things such as family responsibilities that make it harder or easier to deal with a crisis. Nations don't have family responsibilities, but nations again have more or less freedom of choice depending upon particularly geopolitical constraints. And so with these dozen outcome predictors as hypotheses, my forthcoming book that will be out next May looks at national crises in seven countries, one of them Japan, and the other six countries in which I've lived that I've been visiting be for between 40 and 70 years, countries where I speak or spoke the language, and those countries are Finland, which I visited in the aftermath of the Winter War, Chile, where I was living in the run-up to the Pinochet coup d'etat, Indonesia, where I began working in the aftermath of the 1965 genocide, Germany, where I was living as Germans began to come to grips with the legacies of the Nazi era. 
Australia, which I first visited when the white Australia policy was still in its heyday, and Australia's gradually dismantled the white Australia policy, and of course the United States today. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Today's speaker, Jared Diamond, won a Pulitzer Prize for his 1997 book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. He's a professor of geography at UCLA and writes about human evolution, anthropology, the environment, and sociology. The book that's the focus of today's talk, Upheaval, was released this month. His lecture was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June of 2018. Let's get back to it. Here's Jared Diamond. Well, this is abstract, so let's look at a specific example of a national political crisis. And that's Japan in the Meiji era. The Meiji era of Japan is the era that began in 1868 with the coming to power of the Meiji emperor. Until 1853, Japan for about two centuries had been isolated. Japanese were not permitted to travel overseas, foreigners were not permitted to visit Japan, and that isolation of Japan was ended by force in July of 1853 when an American steamship fleet with cannons under Commodore Perry sailed uninvited into Tokyo Harbor and demanded that Japan provide help to shipwrecked American sailors and sell, sell coal to American ships. That forced the recognition by Japan that its two-centuries-old policy of isolation no longer worked. It provoked a crisis. What could Japan do quickly to develop the strength and learn from the West so that it could resist the West and not go down the course of China, which had recently been defeated by Britain and France? There were Japanese who denied that there was a crisis and believed that Japan could resist the West, but that fantasy was dissipated by two cases in which Western fleets bombarded areas of Japan that had attempted to resist the West. And so the result in 1868 was the overthrow of Japan's military governor, the shogun, the installation of um, a new government, the so-called Meiji Restoration, which has provided us with the outstanding modern example of selective change. The Meiji era in Japan illustrates most of the 12 outcome predictor variables suggested by personal crises. Japan in the Meiji era did get help from Britain, from Germany, from France, from the United States in rebuilding itself. Japan did have other countries as models it borrowed those models with modification. It modified the German constitution. It borrowed a fleet, adopted a fleet braced, based on the British fleet. It rebuilt its army based on the German army. It initially modeled a new education system based on American education. It variously used either French or German civil or criminal law codes. The Japanese exhibited patience in trying one after another model until they found a model that worked and was compatible with Japanese values. Many things were changed in Japan in the Meiji era. Japan adopted a parliamentary government, a constitution, a Western-style judicial system, a national army, a national system of education, Western weapons, et cetera, et cetera. But 
Japan also built a fence. The changes were selective. The Japanese were clear that there were some things open for change, and there were other things that were not going to be changed. Japan did not jettison its emperor. Japan retained its kanji writing system. Japan retained many aspects of Japanese culture that still render Japan so distinctive today. Japan also offers us in the Meiji era an outstanding example of realistic military self-appraisal. Japan gradually expanded militarily from 1870 until 1914, almost never making a mistake, gauging correctly what it could get away with, in contrast to the lack of honest military self-appraisal that in the 1930s precipitated Japan into a horrible war that it could not win. So Japan in the Meiji era then does illustrate most of the hypothesized predictive factors for the outcomes of national crises. Again, all of you have been through personal crises, which means I'm sure everybody in the room today. You all know that a personal crisis, once you get over it, doesn't mean that you are happy and will never have another problem for the rest of your life. You will have new, probably you will have further crises, or the initial problem may come back again. And similarly with countries, getting through one crisis doesn't mean that the country will be happy forever. Japan, after getting through the crisis of the Meiji era, Japan faced another crisis when it was devastated at the end of World War II. And today, Japan is moving into a new crisis. Japan faces problems, some of which the Japanese acknowledge, the problems of government debt, of declining birth rate, of declining population, of aging population, of the role of women, but there are also big problems, I think, in Japan today that the Japanese do not yet acknowledge. The problems of how to solve those issues in Japan that other countries solve by immigration, but Japan does not want to use immigration. What will be its alternative solution to those problems? Japan's issues of dependence on overseas resources, Japan's relationships with its neighbors, China and Korea, still poisoned by the legacies of World War II, which Japan has not faced up to in the way that Germany has. Japan is not yet acknowledging these problems or learning from models. At this point, you are undoubtedly thinking in the back of your minds, the US, the US, when is he going to talk about the United States? <laughs> well, the, the United States faces problems today, and some Americans, but not others, would say that we are spiraling into a crisis. One can argue about what the major problems of the United States are, because there are lots of them. But if one has to ask, what are the problem, big problems in the United States that threaten the end of American democracy and that threaten the undermining of our economic power and problems that are getting worse rather than better? My vote would be for four problems that I see as particularly serious in the United States today. One is the problem of political polarization. You all know that compromise has been breaking down over the last 20 years. There's been more and more polarization. More and more people don't personally know anybody who voted for the other candidate for president. More and more people, including some in my close um, uh, friendships, more and more people are no longer speaking to relatives who prefer the other political party. In the last half dozen years, there have been more filibusters 
and more cloatures to overturn filibusters than in all the previous two centuries of American history. Whereas until relatively recently, there was still compromise in American politics. In the 1980s, the Democrats did not like Ronald Reagan's policies, but nevertheless, the Democrats and Ronald Reagan had a relatively productive relationship, passed lots of major legislation, were on civil terms with each other, and Tip O'Neill, the, the leader of the House with the Democrats, brought up Reagan's proposals for a vote, didn't try to push away the proposals and got votes on them and often lost the votes, but nevertheless, it was an honorable relationship. Um, that's no longer the case. Why is it that political polarization is developing? Why is it that compromise is deteriorating in the United States today? It's not clear. Friends of mine familiar with Washington suggest one explanation may be the growth of domestic air travel such that representatives, elected representatives in Washington um, leave their families back in the home state because with domestic air travel and the rising cost of electrical, cam electrical campaigns, they go home for the weekend, their families are in the home state, whereas until the growth of domestic air travel, um, Congress people had their families in Washington and they met together on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, so socialized with each other, they knew each other's spouses, they knew each other's children, they knew each other as friends, whereas now that's no longer the case. That's a suggested explanation. Another suggested explanation is the growth of niche media, the 487 television channels that show up on our cable bill, which mean that you can tune into the channel and you can tune in to the Facebook accounts that tell you only what you want to know and what you already agree with. Another suggestion is the problem is much broader than the breakdown of of political compromise in American society. The problem may be a breakdown of civility more general, generally in American society, associated with the increase, the proliferation of non-face-to-face -face communication. The United States is not like New Guinea, where I do my field work. In New Guinea, where you have a conversation, you're always looking at the other person directly in the face, and there's no hand held, and you're looking at them few feet away and you're reading the signals and you're understanding the body language. In the United States, most of our communication today, that's all communication in New Guinea. Most communication in the United States today is secondhand. It's things on a screen. It's easier to be insulting, to call names, to be dismissive of someone who is just numbers and words on a screen than somebody who is face to face with you. Those are suggestions, but with those suggestions, there are similar factors operating today in Japan and in Western Europe. So why is there not a corresponding breakdown of compromise and an increase in polarization in Japan and in Europe? I have a hypo hypothesis for this, but this is one of the big questions and certainly one of the big problems about the United States today, polarization. Another obvious problem in the United States today is voter participation. Winston Churchill said that when someone pointed out to him the problems of democracies, such as how long it takes to reach any decision, Churchill said, yes, democracy is the worst form of government except for all other forms that at one or another time have been tried. The fact is, yes, democracy has its problems, but democracy has great advantages. You can debate something even if the government doesn't like it. And we've seen in our lifetimes the debate over the Vietnam War and the debate over the Nixon administration in the United States. Also, if people can express their views, 
as is possible in a democracy, but not in a dictatorship. Uh, you have the sense that, all right, you lost this election, but there's another election, and you have another chance. But if people don't vote, then they, or can't vote, then they're likely to be hopeless, and their only outlook, their only outlet, which we've seen in Los, I've seen in Los Angeles twice in my lifetime, is riots. The riots in Los Angeles, the Rodney King riots, the Watts riots. In those cases, the Beverly Hills police put up yellow strips of plastic tape across the Boulevard's Beverly Hills to prevent the rioters from moving into Beverly Hills. Well, the rioters that happened then did not move into Beverly Hills, but you can bet that if so many Americans continue to feel hopeless, there will be more riots in LA and other American cities, and yellow strips of plastic police tape are not going to keep the rioters out of wealthy wealthy neighborhoods. In the United States, why is voter, voter participation? Voter participation in presidential elections has never been higher than 61% in the United States. Voter participation in major Italian elections since World War II has never been less than 87%, and it varies between 87 and 93%. When Indonesia had its first free elections um, at the end of the Suharto um, dictatorship, the turnout of voters in Indonesia without a democratic history was again 93%. Why is voter turnout so low in the United States? Two reasons. One is that voters who would like to vote are prevented from registering by a whole panoply of local and state ordinances. And the other is that those Americans who have succeeded in registering to vote do not bother to vote for a number of reasons unparalleled in other major democracies. That's the second big problem of the US. Third big problem of the US that I see is socioeconomic inequality and the growing loss of socioeconomic mobility. We Americans think of the United States as a country of rags to riches, a country where it's easier than anywhere else in the world for someone to arrive as a poor immigrant and end up rich. The cruel reality is that it is harder today for the child of a poor American to become rich than in any other major democracy. And that reduction of socioeconomic mobility has been getting worse in the last several, several decades. A reason for it, just an illustration for it, is that the children of poor people don't have access to nearly as good education as do the children of rich people. But education is important for getting ahead of the world. And an example of how in the United States, it's hard for poor people to educate their children, but the reverse is the case in Japan, is what happens in poor school districts. In the United States, as you know, in poor school districts, the ratio of students to teachers is high, which means that the schools in poor districts are less good schools, and kids in poor districts are less likely to get a good education, be able to rise out of their poverty. In Japan, it's the reverse by government policy. In poor school districts, the Japanese government, by policy, has fewer students per teacher with the goal of making it possible for Japanese from poor families to end up rich. And the result is that socioeconomic equality in Japan, surprisingly to me, and socioeconomic mobility in Japan is much higher than the United States and comparable to that of Scandinavian countries. And then finally, a fourth, what seems to me a fourth factor for the, the um, risk to the United States, crisis facing the United States, is the decline of government investment in public purposes. 
one can ask, how likely is it that the United States is going to solve our problems? Let's look at the 12 outcome variables, which are in our favor and which have a poor prognosis for us. Perhaps the variable least in our favor is learning from models. We all know in our personal lives that you know, if you marriage, when my first marriage broke down in the next two days, I went out and talked to four friends whose marriages had also broken down, and I learned a lot from the models of friends whose, whose marriages had broken down. Similarly, countries can learn from models of other countries. Um, many of the problems that the United States has are shared with other countries. We have problems of prisons, so do other countries. We have problems of health care, so do other countries. We have problems of teachers and schools, so do other countries. We have issues of immigration. We have issues of voter registration. But those issues are not unique to the United States. Other countries have essentially the same problems and in many cases have different and more successful approaches to those problems. Norwegian and German prisons have much higher rates of reducing recidivism than do American prisons by the way they're run. Finland and Korea and Japan pay their teachers more and have higher prestige for their teachers. And the result is that the students coming out of Japanese and Korean and Finnish schools are the best students in the world. And the United States is down with Estonia somewhere around position 15. In Italy and Germany, voter registration is automatic. The United States makes voter registration as non-automatic as possible in many areas. Nevertheless, although other countries have solutions to our problems, the United States resists in learning from other countries, even in learning from our neighbor Canada, because of our belief in what's called American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism means that Americans believe that the United States is unique. Yes, in some respects it's unique. But our belief that the United States is unique means that we think that we can't learn from any other country because there's no other country um, that is like us. Um, nevertheless, Prisons and healthcare and schools are issues that are shared among countries, and there's obviously a lot that we can learn. Why is it that Canada and Finland have immigration policies approved by 85 to 95 percent of the voters? Impossible in the United States. We could learn from that. So our unwillingness to learn from models is a factor against us in the United States, but factors in our favor are our geographic advantages, that we are protected on two sides by oceans and on the other two sides by countries, Mexico and Canada, that are not military threats to us. Uh, we have the advantage of Americans' can-do attitude, our attitude that problems are there to be solved. We have the traditional advantages of American democracy and of our unusual and wonderful federal system. All this means that there are predictors, there are things that stand in the way of us solving our crisis, and there are things that are in our favor. The outcome is uncertain. The Aspen Ideas Festival only happens once a year, but the ideas on aspenideas.org are available all the time. This spring, we introduced a brand new website that brings everyone the captivating conversations and remarkable speakers that define the festival. Effortlessly explore a diverse range of topics and immerse yourself in conversations that inspire you to think deeper. On aspenideas.org, you'll discover ideas you didn't even know you were looking for. Log on to aspenideas.org and start exploring today. 
Here's the rest of today's conversation. Jared Diamond. If you look at how these outcome factors vary, not just between the United States and other countries, but among all my seven countries, here are some examples. Acceptance of responsibility and avoidance of self-pity and victimization. Germany after World War I denied responsibility, thought that there was a widespread belief that Germany had lost World War I because of a Dolstossenbrücken, a stab in the back, um, and that self-deception precipitated Germany eventually into the Nazi era in World War II. After World War II, Japan and Germany have adopted opposite policies. Uh, Germany has been pitiless in coming to grips with their own responsibility for World War II, and Japan has been the reverse in denying responsibility for their role, poisoning their relationships with China and Korea. Getting help from other countries, there's a factor that has differed among countries. Meiji Japan got lots of help from Britain, France, Germany, and the US. Finland, when it was attacked by the Soviet Union on November 30, 1939, got help from none of its allies. Using other nations as models, Meiji Japan, yes. The US now, no. National identity is strong in most of the countries that are the the subject of my studies. For example, Chile, at the end of the Pinochet era, Chile has had the problem of bringing back peace when in the country are the victims of torture and the people who carried out the torture. But the president of Chile, the, the liberal socialist president of Chile who followed Pinochet um, and whom many liberals expected would now punish Pinochet and his followers, um, his motto was, we have to build a fatherland for all Chileans, and that means Chileans who tortured and Chileans who suffered torture. Uh, and that has, has made the reconciliation in Chile because of this strong national identity in Chile um, more possible. Whereas Indonesia, which became independent in 1949, naturally Indonesia has a much shallower sense of national identity. Honest self-appraisal, strong in Finland after its wars with the Soviet Union, weak in the United States today, experience of previous crises giving confidence that we can now deal with a new crisis. Any of you who know much about Britain, you know that in Britain, the Battle of Britain, 1942, particularly among older British, comes up regularly when Britain, standing alone, was able to fight off the Luftwaffe of the German Air Force. The British view is, since we got through that, the Battle of Britain, we can get through anything. And similarly, even more for Finland. Finland, after the Winter War against the Soviet Union, uh, the Finnish, Finnish view is, we survived the Winter War, we can now survive anything. The result is that last year, when Finland celebrated its 100th anniversary of independence, the Finland's independence celebrations did not focus on independence. Instead, they focused on the Winter War, because it was the Winter War and Finland's getting through the Winter War that has given Finns confidence that we got through that so we can get through anything. And so on and so on. Naturally, there are lots of big unsolved questions about national political crises. There are questions that friends and people ask me all the time whenever we get into a conversation about national crises. People often ask me, what about the role of leaders? 
does a leader make a difference in solving a crisis, or do leaders really have not much significance? This is a recurrent debate among historians. Um, the great man view of history views history as the deeds of great men, whereas other views of history say that leaders who seem to be effective leaders, they're really just, they're constrained, they're responding to their situation. Did Hitler really make a difference for Germany, or would Germany have had the same outcome even if Hitler had been killed in a near-death car accident three years before he came to power? Historians have wrestled without success with this seemingly unresolvable problem. But in the last half dozen years, um, there have, there's been two interesting studies by two economists, Jones and Oaken, that seem to me to offer a prospective solution to this problem, the role of leaders. The problem with the, the historical studies is you pick a leader, Hitler, and all right, but, but Hitler was not a random factor. Hitler came to power for reasons. How can you study random factors in the role of leaders? And so Jones and Oakham looked at every case in the last 80 years where a leader died in office of natural causes. If a country's leader dies of cancer or of drowning, like Prime Minister Harold Holt of Australia, there's no, nothing fundamental Australia, in Australia that caused Harold Holt to drown rather than to, to survive drowning. Um, these are truly random events. And so, but if you examine what happened to these 80 countries after these 80 random events, it turns out that on the average, there were more likely to be changes following the death of a leader due to natural causes, changes in economic growth, for example, or in form of government, than in years when the leader did not die of natural causes. And another such random example um, is leaders getting assassinated. Leaders, if a leader, if there's an assassination attempt, that's not random. The, there are reasons why leaders get unpopular and there's an assassination attempt. But whether the assassination attempt succeeds or not is random. Someone attempted to assassinate Teddy Roosevelt, but Teddy Roosevelt had a thick thing in his pocket, and so he was a little wounded, but he came off okay. And so Jones and Oaken compared successful, all successful versus all unsuccessful assassination attempts in the last 150 years, and there were something like 250 cases. So that's enough cases to do statistics. And what came out of this is that the death of a leader is more likely to affect a country if the leader is an autocrat than if he's a Democrat, he or she is a Democrat. Not surprising because autocrats have more power. The death of a Democratic leader is more likely to change policy in wartime than peacetime because in wartime, Democratic leaders have more power. And the death of a leader is more likely to make a difference when there is a competition between two, two almost balanced points of view as in Britain 1940, May 1940, the debate about whether or not to try to seek accommodation with Hitler. So this suggests then that leaders do, may have a role under some circumstances, but this seems to me a promising avenue for trying to understand the role of leadership more generally. People often ask me, do countries act in advance of a crisis or do, do countries wait for a crisis to come? Well, you all know in your personal lives, uh, you're more likely to act when something bad has happened than with great foresight looking into the future. Um, uh, Samuel Johnson uh, wrote, um, 
Believe me, sir, if a man knows that he is going to be hanged in two weeks, it concentrates his thinking wonderfully. Uh, similarly, countries are more likely to deal with a problem if a crisis blows up than anticipate it, but there are cases of countries that anticipated problems, prime examples being Europe in the 1950s under Conrad Adenauer and others, um, getting together and taking the first steps to forming the European Union, not waiting for World War III, but taking the first steps to form the EU in order to prevent a World War III from happening, acting in advance of a crisis. Or Finland's foreign policy after the end of the Second World War, constantly attentive to making sure that there were not going to be problems with the Soviet Union, such as the problems that blew up in 1939. And finally, any of you here in the business world may be starting to think, so here this guy is talking about personal crises and talking about national crises, but I'm in the business world. I know that there are business crises. And this is on my mind because about a month ago, I happened to be at a meeting where there were leaders of some a couple of America's largest companies, and we got talking about these issues of crises. And the leaders, one of them being, being, being here at Aspen this week, the leader said, yes, there are similar issues in the business world concerning crises, but there are also differences. Companies are more likely to act in advance of a crisis than our nations. And when companies get help, the help is not from your next door neighbor, but it's from banks and lenders and so on. So those are some of the unanswered questions. In short, um, I'm interested in national political crises, and my approach is not to study just one country, but to take a comparative approach. My approach, approach being guided by the factors that prove useful in understanding the outcomes of personal crises. Not that the same factors apply to national crises, but the outcome predictors for personal crises can help suggest outcome predictors for national crises. I've looked at the course of national crises in the seven countries that I know best, six of them being ones where I've lived and speak the language, and it seems to me that, that the dozen factors suggested by personal crises are useful in understanding the outcomes of national crises, but there's a lot still to be done in this area. And above all, uh, my hope would be that by understanding uh, what helps a country get through a national crisis, um, our politicians and perhaps our electors may be able to deal from a position of understanding with national crises. Let's use this time. Uh, please ask a question. A question is defined as something ending in a question mark, and a question is defined as something of a sentence or two. So, yes. Hi. Um, question I have is uh, about culture and differences that you found. Uh, having lived myself in 10 countries and visited 50. The question I, of culture? I found culture dramatically impacts yeah. results. Culture obviously has, has a big effect, and just to take Japan and the United States, why is it that, that Germany has extensively apologized for World War II and Japan has not apologized for World War II? This is something that Marie and I talk a lot about because we have Japanese relatives, and we are told that there are aspects of Japanese culture, that an apology in Japan is regarded as the beginning of something disgraceful, whereas an apology in Germany or the United States is marked as the, the end and the path to a solution. And again, the United States, uh, we Americans have our own culture, um, our culture being a belief that, that you should stand on your own feet, and that's a culture, but there are many people who are not in a position to stand in, on their own feet. So yes, culture is an important issue 
And those are just two examples. Yes? Did you find that there is a generation, like the generation that survives the crisis and is descended after it, is it culturally different? Or there, do people have to change a lot in order for the country to sort of, or does the, which comes for, I don't know. That's, that's a great question, the question of genera generational changes. This is something that I know more about in the United States and in Germany than I do in Japan. I know about it in the United States because my wife is 11 years younger than me. That's half a generation. And that'll, the 11-year age difference produces different points of view, which we've talked a lot about. But I see the general, gener, generational changes in the United States. In Germany, generational changes are enormous. Uh, the student rebellion of 1968 was committed by those Germans who were born in 1945 who did not experience the World War, and the students were rebelling against their parents, who were the German generation that had voted Hitler to power. So that's a great comment. And yes, generational change is a major thing. Yes? You listed four reasons, and I'm just wondering if any one of them can take the United States down, or if we fix any one of them, does that prevent the United States? Sorry, could you say that once again, please? You listed four factors, right, for the United States potential crisis. Yeah. Can we, do we have to fix all four? Can we fix just one? How does it, how does it compare to other countries if you, if you treat just one at a time? So what, what, about, the, what about the United States and the, the crisis that we're facing? Um, if, you, if you go through our checklist in order, first thing in the United States, first thing for any, any country, any person is to acknowledge that there's a crisis. I would say the majority of Americans don't yet consider that the United States is in crisis mode. We got to acknowledge that there's a crisis. Second, th second step is acknowledge that it's your responsibility to, to solve it. Um, it's not the responsibility of those Mexicans and those Canadians and those, those Chinese and those Europeans. There are things we cannot change what Canada does. We can only change what we do ourselves. And so a second step that's still deficient in the United States is to accept responsibility. And a third step, in the United States is to draw the circle. Um, I'm not bashing the United States. I'm here by choice. There are many things in the United States that work very well. We don't need to change everything in the United States. We need to, need to identify a few things and change them. Yes. Um, Bruce McGarry, I'm, I'm, it seems that change comes through crisis. And I'm just wondering, as you examine these rise and fall of civilizations, what crisis you may see that may cause this change. So what crisis? Well, is it an economic crisis? Is it a political crisis? Or what do you think is going to make the change? Because there, there, there will be something that happens. Good question. So where, where's the black swan? Where's the black swan? Economic crisis, political crisis, military crisis. As you all know from your personal lives, stuff comes from all directions. We cannot be attentive only to military crises because the United States is not an imminent risk of being undermined by a military crisis. But we do have big economic crises and we have big social crises. On the other hand, Finland on November 30, 1939, Finland's problem was not a social crisis in Finland. Finland's problem was that the Soviet Union with a population of 170 million was attacking and bombing Finland. So there are many different sorts of crises, just as with marriages, there are many different ways to get a marriage into trouble. There are many different ways to get a country into trouble. Yes? On the issue of crisis, do you think, given the polarization today, that if there 
impeachment proceedings brought in a year, highly speculative, but you think that would throw this country into a crisis? Again, could, could you say that once again, talking please? Talking about, I, what I said is, if impeachment proceedings should be brought, perhaps after the Mueller report comes out, yeah. Congress changes, given the polarization today, could you foresee a crisis there? Yeah. Uh, right. I've been very concerned about it. Yeah. If there are impeachment um, proceedings, would that produce a, a crisis? Um, on the mundane level, impeachment has to pass by two-thirds vote, and at least the way things stand at the moment, there's no prospect of a two-thirds vote. On the other hand, during the Nixon era, although Nixon's party held a majority, uh, there was the basis for a two-thirds vote. It all depends upon what, what happens in the near future, and that is um, unpredictable. <laughs> as Yogi Berra, you know, as Yogi Berra said, it's very, it's, it's very hard to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> I see we're down to our last minute, so th that's a good point at which to conclude. Thank you very much for joining me today. Jared Diamond is a geography professor at UCLA. He researches and teaches the biology of New Guinea birds, digestive physiology, and conservation biology. He's received the U.S. National Medal of Science and is a director of the World Wildlife Fund and Conservation International. He spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 28, 2018. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our new website, aspenideas.org. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. <laughs>